Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you this morning, and I'm excited to read some passages from the Gospel of Mark with you. Before we do that, why don't we just say a prayer and invite the Lord to be with us and to guide us in the study of the Bible. Will you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Dear God, we do ask for your help this morning. We ask for your help to focus, to understand, Lord, and to apply the Bible to our hearts and to our lives. We're so grateful to be here. We're so so grateful to know you and belong to you and to belong to a body of believers, Lord, who are filled with your presence and here to encourage us and equip us for the work of ministry, Lord, for this life that you've given us to live. And so we just ask that this morning would be a key part of that, Lord. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep your May open. Actually, he didn't say it quite with that intonation, but that is what my friend said to me right after he uh, told me about how he proposed to his fiance. She had no clue he was about to propose to her because he had very skillfully left a business card to a jeweler with the date August 30th, pickup date, August 30th on the back of it. Then he planted it somewhere where he knew she would find it. And sure enough, she was over at his place, noticed the business card sticking out on his desk and flipped it over and she saw August 30th. So she thought, oh, I guess he's going to pick up the ring on or on August 30th. And, and, and now I know. Now I'm clued in. Little did she know that the proposal was actually already well underway and had been in the, in the works for weeks. And so while her and her, fian- her boyfriend, Daniel, my friend, were exploring Balboa Park, they made their way into an art gallery that was there. No one was around. It was completely empty for some reason. And as they explored the art gallery, they came to the back of the gallery and And to Emily's surprise, there was a painting hung of her face and Daniel's face with a ribbon above it that said, Will you marry me? He'd been working on it for weeks. And so he asked her to marry him. Uh, She said that her her legs, as soon as she saw the paintings, got really weak. And, And then the moment came. And when I hear stories like that, these, these touching stories of couples who, who fall in love and who decide to get married and, and they, they have these romantic uh, weddings, sometimes this thought, this question goes through my mind. Sometimes I ask myself, what is the meaning of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? Is it just about loving someone? Is it about a place to raise children? I'm sure it's all of those things. But when God created marriage, what did he have in mind? What from the beginning was his purpose or his plan for two people in marriage? And if you've ever pondered that as I have, what the Bible tells us is that marriage is a place where two people prioritize their relationship with each other. Where two people say, I've got a life full of relationships that are very important, 
But I don't have to wonder which one of those relationships takes first place, is the priority in my heart and in my life. I've got a boss at work. Perhaps I have children. I have friends. I have colleagues. I have so many important relationships with so many important needs. But I have one spouse. And marriage is a place where God designed from the very beginning to clarify for us which relationship, humanly speaking, takes the priority. We're going to pick up our study in um, Mark chapter 10. We'll be in Mark chapter 10 this morning. And, um, and we'll start reading in verse 1 of that chapter. And as we make our way through this section here, see if you can pick up on how from the very beginning God designed marriage to be a place where two people prioritize their relationship with each other. We'll start in verse 1. It says this, <clears throat> Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with a question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man may give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. It says that Jesus is teaching the crowds. He's moving ever closer to Jerusalem on this journey. And while he's teaching, the Pharisees come and it says they try to trap him in a question. Now, it seems like a trap for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's almost certain that they already know the answer to the question that they ask him. Because Jesus already explains his position on this question on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, he gives the answer very clearly. And so it seems a little suspicious that they would ask a question that they already probably know the answer to. But it also seems like a trap, commentators point out, because of where he is. He happens to be in an area that is governed by Herod Antipas, a man who we already know had someone arrested and ultimately executed who criticized his marriage. Herod Antipas it seems, divorced his wife and married his brother's wife, Herodias. And so it's possible, scholars say, that the, that the Pharisees are hoping to get Jesus to say what they already know he's going to say so that they can get word back to Herod as quickly as possible so that perhaps Jesus will suffer the same fate as John the Baptist. And Jesus answers their question. But the way he chooses to answer their question is not with just a simple, straightforward answer, 
but he decides to answer it by pointing them back to the very meaning or purpose of marriage that God designed from the very beginning. And what is that? What is that purpose? He says, God created them, male and female, and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now, the interpretation of leaving your father and mother and being joined to your spouse is that there is an exchange of your most important relationship in the world for a new one. You leave your parents in the sense that you exchange that priority of those who have cared for you and loved you and raised you and spoken into your life and had so much impact on you for someone else who now comes first, who now is your number one relationship, humanly speaking, under God. And if you were to say that to... Um, to a young couple in love, as I've heard pastors say to young couples in love at weddings many times, it's always just like a, duh, like that is so obvious, another boring wedding sermon. Like they know that they're supposed to prioritize each other. Look at them. They prioritize each other. They spend time together. They, they, they care deeply about the, the opinions of one another probably at that point more than anybody else in the whole world. And so it seems like kind of so obvious, why would you even bother to say it? And yet, we know all too well that as marriage goes on, the obvious nature of how important this relationship is starts to get a little bit less obvious. As all of the other relationships in your life start to seem more and more and more important. See, the longer you're married, the more clear it becomes that as great as your spouse is, they don't pay the bills. Your boss does when he pays you. And so, and so prioritizing your boss when he asks for overtime or when he gives his opinion or his input into your life it's really important. And as marriage goes on, you, it becomes very clear that your spouse is important. But your spouse isn't going to die if you walk out of the room and leave them there for a few hours. Your child very likely could. Your kids need you. They're so important in your life. Your friends, they're going through ups and downs of life love and loss and jobs and everything in between, and you have to be there for them. And the more important all the relationships of life become, the more tempting it can be to forget the one relationship that God designed to exist in such a way that you wouldn't have to wonder if it comes first or which relationship is most important in your life. One of my friends, the same gentleman who uh, I shared his proposal story with you a moment ago, I was chatting with him about uh, touching Father's Day moments that we'd had in our lives. And uh, he, he said, you know, one day I gave my dad 
a card for Father's Day, and it made him tear up a little bit. And we were just like, whoa, like that's, that's not easy. What, what did you put in that card, man? And he said, I said, I wrote, Dad, it's been said that the best thing a father can do for his children is love their mother. Thank you for loving mom. He said, when he, he said that's all he wrote in the card, gave it to his father, and he said when his father read it, he kind of got emotional and had to wipe a tear from his eye. When he was uh, telling me that story this past week, because I, I called him to make sure I was remembering it properly, his wife, Emily, she pushed her face over into the FaceTime camera because they're actually on their honeymoon right now. And he said, she said, yeah, Luke, he told me that same story about how he gave his dad that card on one of our first dates, and that's what hooked me. And I said, oh, really? I said, you know, that totally makes sense. I said, because, you know, you're, on, you're, you're dating this guy, you're trying to get to know him, and if he shares with you how he saw the importance and the impact of a father who, amidst all the busyness and craziness of life, loved and cherished and prioritized his wife, well, there's a good chance he's going to want to bring that same thing into your marriage with you if it works out with you guys. And then I said, now I'm realizing what I got to do is write that same quote in a card to my dad and then bring it up on an early date and hook someone into marriage. It was, I wasn't sure if I should say that part. It was funny because I know them. But, um, but there's no litmus test, of course, right? It's where it gets tricky. I can't, I, you can't find five questions on, on Google to know with 100% certainty if you're cherishing, prioritizing your spouse and not neglecting them and letting that relationship slip further and further back because of all the other relationships competing for your time, your energy, your respect. But I do think it's worth noting this morning that as Jesus answers this question about divorce from the Pharisees, that he reminds us that from the very beginning, God created marriage to be a place where we prioritize our relationship with each other. And of course, one of the ways that we do that is by pursuing the intimacy of marriage. Marriage brings two people together in a very unique way. In a way, humanly speaking, that is closer than any two people can be brought together. It's so intimate, in fact, that the Bible goes so far as to say that the two actually become one. Now, that doesn't mean you lose your individuality, but I think most of us would agree that in marriage, in that sacred covenant, the two people who come together become something together that neither of them are apart. There is such an intimacy expressed physically, but not just physically. It's not, it's not just bearing their bodies, but bearing their very souls in vulnerability 
and in saying, I want to know you and be known by you in a way that no other relationship on earth can go that deep. And because we believe this as followers of Jesus, we pursue that intimacy with our spouse. We protect that exclusive, unique, profound closeness that only exists in the covenant of marriage, even when there's temptations along the way to stop pursuing intimacy or perhaps even to pursue cheap imitation intimacy outside of marriage. We're going to keep reading Jesus' answer here, and we'll pick up in verse 8 and listen to how Jesus points us to the purpose of marriage, which is intimacy. He says this in verse 8. The next thing Jesus says, and the two are united into one. Okay, so he already told us you leave your parents and you're joined to your spouse. But then he clarifies, quoting, going back to Genesis here, of course, that this isn't like just exchange joining your, your spouse the same way you were joined to your parents. No, this is something much more profound. He says, the two become one. It's an incredible closeness and intimacy that is born in the covenant of marriage. And again, this would be almost a silly speech to give at a wedding. Because when you see two people standing at an altar, <laughs> you don't really need to tell them, God designed marriage for intimacy, for you to be close to each other physically and emotionally and in every other way. Yeah, they know. They can't wait to be close physically. And emotionally, it's so exciting to hear about every little detail about the other person's life and the stories of their childhood and every, everything in between. It's just, it's a thrill to start making your way towards the oneness, the romance, one pastor said. It's God's trick to get us married. <laughs> but, but, of course, we know that as time goes on, that thrill, that obvious nature of the intimacy of marriage, it can wane, and it can be less obvious. And we can, we can start to neglect pursuing the closeness, the, the desire to know and be known by our partner. In fact, it can seem so unamusing that we may even begin to notice the temptations around us, perhaps to cross the line emotionally with someone at work of the opposite sex, because that's different. That's new. You don't know their stories. You haven't heard them a thousand times. Or perhaps to entertain the fake, cheap intimacy sexually online. 
But as followers of Christ, even when the initial enthusiasm and wonder of the intimacy of marriage begins to wane, we remember that anything outside of the intimacy of the covenant of marriage is a sham, is a fake, is a trick, is a trap. It just isn't what God designed marriage from the beginning to be. And when you try to settle for cheap imitation, closeness, and intimacy outside of the wonder and mystery of the oneness of marriage, you fall far short of what God created and designed intimacy to look like in marriage. I've had the the pleasure of seeing a, a number of Christian men go through various stages of romance and marriage. And it's so fun to watch. I had one friend in the early stages of romance tell me, Luke, I cried the whole way home from my second date with her because I was apologizing to God for ever doubting that he had the right person out there for me. Right? Totally in love. Totally sold. And of course, in the beginning, they're just enthralled and they, they almost, it almost seems like they think they found the one perfect person on earth. But I've also had the pleasure and joy of watching a number of Christian men as the years tick by rise to the challenge of pursuing that sacred, exclusive intimacy with their spouse. I've had them come with the questions of how in the world do I understand her? How do I, how do I appreciate her? How can I serve her? It's so frustrating. It's so hard. And I've seen them struggle and strain to pursue their wife faithfully and to resist any temptation for cheap, fake intimacy outside of their marriage. That's been such a blessing to watch, but I've only ever really got to see it from the guy's perspective. Because I'm a guy, all my, most, my closest friends are guys. The other day, just a couple weeks ago actually, I got to see a little glimpse of this from the other side. And this isn't all there is, I'm sure. I'm sure you guys have lots to talk about at your women's retreats. But I was talking to a, a woman in my family. And she was sitting there with her daughter running around her feet, and she's pregnant with her second. And, and somehow this topic of, 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 of faithfulness in marriage came up. And she said, I never wonder about my husband. She said, I, tr I trust him totally. I never think, oh, what's he up to? Is he going to be unfaithful to me? She said, doesn't even cross my mind. I completely trust him. And as she was saying this, I'm kind of thinking of this guy and thinking of, you know, my side of his life who I've, what, that I've seen, of him striving to be a faithful husband who, who, who's close and committed to his wife. And I just said, wow. I said, that is so cool. And she, she said, oh, it's priceless. And I was really touched by that. I was really touched to see a little glimpse, I think, of the, the beauty 
that God intended to exist in this special, unique, exclusive oneness of marriage. Where two people, yes, in the beginning when it's obvious, but even in the seasons where it's tough, say you and you only. I want to know and be close to and be intimate with in every way. And of course, that only, that only exists because as followers of Jesus, we believe that marriage is permanent. That it's not a temporary contract of convenience, but a lifelong covenant. Now, that's not to say that there aren't legitimate reasons for divorce. In fact, in the parallel passage to this one, one of them in, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gives one of, the ex, one of the legitimate reasons for divorce. He says, except in the case of adultery. Adultery, if your spouse commits adultery against you, it certainly doesn't require you to divorce them, but it certainly is a legitimate grounds for divorce. And so it's not that there is no, never a legitimate reason to divorce. But except for in those rare cases, marriage is life long until one or both of those who have joined this covenant die, is what we believe. And we believe that because God says, He's the one who joined us together. Yes, two people make a choice, perhaps fall in love and decide, I want to marry you. But that's not all that happens when two people get married. We believe that the same God who brings life into this world every time a child is born is the God who himself binds two people together in marriage. And because God is the one who created marriage from the beginning and who joins two people in a way that we can't even begin to understand, that we as mere humans simply do not have the right to end it on our own. We're going to pick up reading here. And uh, we'll pick up in verse 8 again. We'll start in the second part of verse 8 and read through verse 9. And listen to what he says here. He says, Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So the Pharisees came with a question, and Jesus gives them their answer. He says, marriage is permanent. It's lifelong because God is the one who joined two people together. It wasn't just a human decision that you can look back on and say, ah, I think I made the wrong one, I'll try again. You did make a decision, but so did God, and it's for the rest of your life. Now, that's kind of daunting if you're single, at least I think so. When I think about the permanence of marriage, it's a little frightening because it's like you make this decision and you're, it's, you're locked in for life, you know, so choose wisely. But 
But it's also a freeing thought, a peaceful thought, I think. That once you do make that decision, once you do cross that line and covet, enter a covenant with someone else, you don't have to look back. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to second guess. You can simply look forward and ask God for help to love and serve this person faithfully for this temporary time that you will be husband and wife until death. And it brings me a little comfort that I'm not the only one that feels this way. Here's how I know. Because I've been in a lot of weddings. I think I've probably been in more weddings. I would wager, okay, that I've been in more weddings than any of you. I've been in a lot. And almost always, there comes this time right before the wedding day where the groom, who's madly in love, is totally terrified. It usually comes like the night before in the hot tub with all the groomsmen or on the car ride to the wedding venue the day before when we're setting up some stuff when all of a sudden he just can't keep it in anymore. He just goes, I am so terrified. Like, I am so afraid. And I just listen to them process this. I don't know why. She's great. I love her. We have so much in common. You know, and I don't really say anything. I just let them feel the weight of the forever decision they are about to make. And then the day comes. And they stand up there with wobbly knees and a tear in their eye. And they take the plunge. They get married. They enter the life long, forever covenant. I was uh, having this conversation with one of the many men who I know who've gotten married. We were sitting at yogurt land, enjoying some yogurt, when he began to process his fears with me, as, many, as they almost all have. And he started telling me how the wedding date's coming up, but nobody's perfectly fit. And they don't have this in common, and they don't disagree on this. And just last week, they got an argument about this. And I could tell, you know, he had these doubts. He had these fears. He had these questions. The wedding date's, you know, it's already planned. And I listened, and I listened, and I listened. And then finally, I, I felt it was okay for me to say this. I said, isn't it going to be great when you finally make that decision? And you don't have to wonder anymore. You don't have to look back. You don't have to second guess. You can just look forward. And find God's help to love and serve this person faithfully for the rest of your life. And he said, yeah, it will be. And what you just said is why I want to ask you a question. And he reached down into his backpack and he pulled out a card. And he said, will you be in my wedding party? I want you to be one of my groomsmen because of what you just said. And it was really touching it was really memorable for me because I felt like he was saying, I want people to surround me in that, on that day and in my life who hold to God's intention for marriage. That it's permanent. That it's lifelong. That there's no looking back, but only finding God's help to move forward and to love and to serve this person who I chose, but who God bound me to for the length of this life. And if you hear all of that, and you still think to yourself, 
If this is God's intention for marriage, who would want to get married? Well, you're in good company. Because actually, in Matthew 19, one of the parallel accounts of this passage, no joke, after Jesus explains all of this, here's what his disciples say. They say, if this is the way it is between a man and a woman, or a husband and a wife, it would be better not to marry. That's what they say. So you're, you're in good company if you still feel the weight of this meaning or purpose of marriage. But here's the good news. If we trust Jesus like a child in marriage, then he will help us to live out this sacred, wonderful covenant of marriage. We're going to read the, the rest of this passage here. And it starts, we'll pick up reading here in verse 10. Listen to how the passage concludes. And as we read, see if you can pick up on the way that Jesus helps us live out his teachings when we trust him like a child. It says this, Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. One day, some, of, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. So he wraps up his teaching on divorce and marriage because the disciples are still asking questions. And then it describes this scene one day where parents are bringing their children to Jesus. The disciples aren't having any of it because culturally speaking, the children aren't very important and they think their master's very important. So they shoo the children away. But Jesus gets angry and he says, no, bring the children to me. And then he teaches something. He says, the kingdom of God belongs to people like these children. And you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're like a child. And of course, he's referring to the childlike dependence and trust that children have on those who are adults in their life because they have no choice. They know no better. They are so, such children in the world with no experience or understanding. And of course, what he's saying is that when you enter the kingdom of heaven, when you become a child of God saved, it only happens when you simply depend and trust in Jesus, that what he says is right and true and applies to you. And that living in that kingdom, those who the kingdom belongs to, they keep living that way. They keep hearing Jesus' voice and simply trusting him and obeying him, including when it comes to topics like the hard topic of God's intention for marriage. Now, it's possible 
that this story of the children is placed right after the difficult teaching of marriage just for that reason, to remind us to trust him in what he says and obey him in what he says when it comes to marriage as though we were children who simply hear and obey and depend on our Heavenly Father. Now, if you are single this morning, there's good news because the, the teaching in the Bible about marriage includes the fact that marriage is temporary. I just said it's permanent. It's lifelong, but life ends, doesn't it? And because marriage is limited to just this brief life, the Bible says if you want to go even deeper, the meaning of marriage in this brief life is to give you a tiny picture, a little itty-bitty glimpse of the eternal marriage between Christ and the church. And so if you're single and you're not ever planning to get married for whatever reason, and there's lots of reasons, you can still take this message and all those like it to heart and apply it to your relationship with Jesus because that marriage never ends. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you again for the opportunity to just reflect on you and think about you and your life in your words, Lord. Our relationship with you is the most meaningful and important one in life, God. And so we thank you for giving us the opportunity to draw near to you and remember you, Lord, and to put you first and to worship you so that everything else in life will fall in its place beneath you, Lord, our one and only God who's worthy of our worship. And I just pray, Lord, that as we stand now to sing this closing song, that our love for you, Lord, would take expression in our words, in our hearts, and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.